Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. Luke 17 picks up with some sayings of Jesus about temptations, perseverance, and forgiveness. Jesus assures us that temptations are going to come, and we need to be sure that we don't cause others to stumble. We have to think about our witness. We have to think about others. Now, this is not letting others determine what is right or wrong or set the standards. We just want to be conscious of the message that we're sending about Jesus with the things that we do in our life. Paul later will say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So just because we're under grace and not the law, we don't have a series of rules for every little thing. We need to not take that for granted and be aware of how we're impacting those around us. There is a mutual accountability that is that is present in this um, section of teaching. And this is consistent with our Methodist heritage. We believe in grace, and there is liberal forgiveness, but it comes with true repentance. And we ask that forgiveness of God. We ask it of the people that we've hurt, but we confess our sins to God and receive God's forgiveness. Jesus telling them that they have to be liberal with forgiving others prompts them to ask, Lord, give us more faithfulness. How how do we do that? Um, unforgiveness can be a sign of lack of faith or lack of depth and growth with God, because it is the Spirit of God that even gives us the ability to repent and to ask forgiveness and to grant forgiveness to others. Obedience is our expectation. We're expected to do what God has told us to do. We shouldn't expect to be rewarded for doing the right thing and the good thing, although we know God will reward us. Ten lepers are healed. This story is unique to Luke as well. There is something about this man, and he comes back and and expresses gratitude, and Jesus says, go your way, for your faith has made you well. He's receiving something else that the other nine do not, and I believe he is experiencing a healing for his emotions, for his soul, for his mind, for the woundedness that has come with this disease and the separation and the the um, outcast role that comes with it. The kingdom of God um, is coming. It's going to be visible to those who don't ignore what God is doing in their midst, and that is what God is doing in Jesus Christ. He uses two biblical analogies, Noah and Lot, in the times of their lives, and these depict events which remove unrighteousness, remove the unrighteous people, and leave the righteous to enjoy a renewed earth. And this is the vision of the end times that Methodist theology embraces. It's not a rapture theology where the church gets taken away from all temptation and persecution, but the fact that there will come a time when all will be put right. It'll be put back like it was in creation, and those who are in Christ Jesus will be able to enjoy that and live in it. 
In chapter 18, we have the parable of the widow and the unjust judge. It's another one that is unique to Luke. Remember that parables have one lesson. Don't make this an allegory where everything stands for something else. God is not an unjust judge. In this story, the believers are like the vulnerable widow in the world, and God responds to us, and we are encouraged to have faith in the face of that delay. Don't quit believing. (laughs) Pray, keep coming back, keep expressing that desire to God. Um, And when we come back to God in prayer, we keep getting our faith bolstered. We find encouragement there. And God is not being lazy or slow or mean. He's being patient. We see this in Second Peter 3, 9. We have another parable, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, another one unique to Luke. This is about pride and contempt and how they are a natural pairing of the two. Jesus blesses the children. Children were of low regard in ancient cultures. Not only were they not to, not only were they to be seen and not heard, they weren't even to be seen. They just were of um, very little regard as far as the social um, stratosphere. And this reminds us that all lives are precious and valuable to God. Okay, um, we have the story of the rich ruler. Um, This is probably a synagogue ruler or leader. These men are usually older by the time they reach this status. So the fact that he is fairly young means he's well-respected. He's probably an extraordinarily brilliant or ambitious young man to be in this position at this age. In other words, he's a, a religious prodigy. But Jesus rejects the flattery with which he tries to address him, um, Jesus is a good guy, and the guy who is coming to him is a good guy, but he's not perfect. The camel was the largest common animal that they would have known, and the eye of a needle would have been a very small thing. Um, Some have made this about a camel going through a very small gate. Um, We don't know that that is necessarily what it is being talked about here. In this culture, the rich were considered blessed, And if they weren't even going to get into heaven, then who possibly could? And that's when Jesus says, well, it's hard to do with human beings, but but God can do the extraordinarily. We're also told to have functioning ears. These men have functioning ears, but a deaf heart. And this young ruler chooses money. Um, But God can break the spell over anything that grips us. Our sacrifices are rewarded. We have a blind beggar near Jericho. He sees what the others do not see. They see Jesus of Nazareth. He sees Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah. And he's not going to be put off. He's going to be a spiritual pit bull. Um, His spiritual sight contrasts with the spiritual blindness of the other people, including the religious leaders. Jericho was a tax collection center, so people who were coming would have had money in their pockets. Um, It is about six miles from the Jordan River, north of the Dead Sea, and on a major highway leading to Jerusalem. In chapter 19, we get the story of Zacchaeus. He's short in stature, and he is short on respect. He's not respected because of his um, profession, but he has a spontaneously generous response to his encounter with Jesus. 20% was considered extremely generous, and he is actually agreeing to pay four times the rustler penalty in Exodus 22, verse 1. 
And we are reminded that this man, too, is a son of Abraham. Our vocation and our past, but in this case, particularly our vocation, does not cancel our access to God. We have the parable of the ten pounds, or in some of the translations, ten talents. The first servant makes a thousand percent profit. The second one makes a 500% profit, but the third one makes no profit at all. He fails to invest and share what he's been given. He keeps it to himself, and he has completely misunderstood the master's nature. The master's nature is to grow, to multiply, to share. Um, Instead, he hoards, and hoarding is not a good spiritual characteristic. And so what he has is taken and given to others. Irresponsibility has consequences. Now we come upon the triumphal entry that we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Bethany is about a mile and a half east of Jerusalem on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. So they're coming from not too terribly far away, but a pretty good walk. Animals were sometimes kept for hire on the edges of cities, and Jesus might have made arrangements for this particular donkey um, at an earlier time. The crowd uses a messianic psalm, Psalm 118, verse 26 is what they are shouting, and the religious leaders react so very strongly because this is a messianic confession that they're making. They are heralding him as their king and messiah. And the religious officials get very afraid because they're afraid of Roman reprisal. This could very much look like a political uprising. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem for the second time. This is only captured in Luke. And the word for wept is the word sobbed or wailed. So tears don't just gently roll down his face. He sobs over the fact that people are not seeing him for who he is. And he mourns for them not being able to have the life that God wants them to have because they just won't see it. Um, It really should move us and be fairly heartbreaking. Now Luke puts the cleansing of the temple story here. Luke includes no violence. Um, his story is just about cleansing it and putting people out. He quotes Jeremiah seven eleven and Isaiah 56, 7. Um, and then even though they're plotting to kill him, Jesus just keeps going about his business, doing his thing. In chapter 20, they're going to question Jesus' authority, and he answers with a counter question. This was a common tactic among rabbis. You ask me a question, let me ask you a question and see if you can't come to the answer yourself. Jesus also raises the stakes by asking a question about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was well-loved and respected among the people. So the religious leaders are, are going to have to make a declaration. If he was who he, who the people believe he was and who he said he was, then why didn't you believe him? Or, or are you going to counter the people? There is the parable of the wicked tenants in a vineyard. The vineyard represents God's promise to God's people. The tenants are Israel, and they assume that God is unwilling or unable to act, um, and they're very, very wrong. We get another um, quote out of Psalm 118, verse 22, more of that messianic psalm. In verse 20, In chapter 20, verse 18, Jesus gives us his version of a rabbinic saying, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. There was a very common rabbinical phrase that said, let me find it, 
If a stone falls in a pot, alas for the pot. If the pot falls on the stone, alas for the pot. Either way, judgment comes and it's not going to be good when it comes. You don't want to be on the receiving end of judgment. As we move on to talk about tax, this tax is not the ones that were collected by the tax collectors. This is a poll tax. It was given directly to Rome to honor Caesar. And so what they're really asking him is, are you loyal to Israel and seeking its independence, or do you think that we should buckle under to Rome to survive? Now he gets a question about from the a question about resurrection. We have another reference to leveret marriage where brothers married a, a widow. This is the only account in Luke of Jesus confronting the Sadducees. Sadducees are a group that emerged in the second century BC. They are the most conservative group of their day. They accepted only the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Only those five books as scripture. They did not believe in a resurrection. This life is it and all you get. And they didn't believe in angels. So that's why their questions are along those lines. They're trying to get Jesus to declare um, a party, very similar to the question about the tax. Declare your political stance. Declare your religious stance on this. We get a, a comment and a question here about David's son and that reference. Then why did he tell his son to come sit him? Um, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. There In a patriarchal society, a father would never say something like this to his son. It just wouldn't have been acceptable. So Jesus is asking him to think a little deeper. Jesus is going to denounce the scribes, and he's going to be very clear that attention to status and pride among religious leaders is denounced. That's a big one that we still struggle with today. In chapter 21, we have the widow's offering or the widow's mite. It is a coin called a lepta. It's one-eighth of a penny. So it's a very, very tiny amount. She's a very, very poor woman. Her generosity contrasts markedly with the scribes in our previous portion. Um, what she does is admirable, but it is not held up to us here as a standard that we should encourage or expect. We should not expect people to take food out of their own mouths. They're, they're in, to put themselves in positions where they are incapable of taking care of themselves to support the church and the work of God. They should give as they are prompted and never be guilted. Jesus talks about signs and persecutions. There will be messianic pretenders. There will be other people who claim to be the Messiah. We know that there were other writings outside the Bible um, confirm this, and it still happens today. There will be social and civil turmoil. There will be natural disasters, and there will be persecution. And that persecution will come from religious leaders and civil authorities. It'll even come from family and friends. Choosing Jesus and following Jesus has consequences, and it is going to put us at odds. We're going to do things differently than the world does them. Jesus foretells the destruction of Jerusalem, which comes about in 69 and 70 AD. Um, and then he talks about his coming. 
And this is referring both to his resurrection and his second coming. He uses imagery from Daniel 7. He makes an allusion to Isaiah 34, 4. There will be a general increase in anxiety as that approaches. But we do not have to be afraid. Those of us who are in Jesus Christ do not have to be afraid of whatever is coming. There is a lesson about the fig tree And it underscores this idea that the kingdom of God is already and not yet. It is come. It came in Jesus Christ. His resurrection was the onset, the advent of a new time period. He is coming again when the kingdom of God will be understood and received in its fullness. And when he talks about this generation will not pass, That generation who was living saw Pentecost, which is the birthday of the church, the coming of the Holy Spirit to indwell those who follow Jesus. They saw his resurrection, and they would see the destruction of Jerusalem. So they see some significant events, but they still won't see the kingdom in all its fullness until his second coming. And then the chapter closes by encouraging us to be alert at all times, not to give up, and not to have a callous indifference to spiritual things. There are spiritual things happening. We need to be aware of them, and we want to be a part of what God is doing and never opposed to God. So that's what's happening in Luke 17 through 21. Look forward to hearing what you experienced.